Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the World Cup begins in Russia. We'll talk about where to watch. Plus, gun violence and masculinity. And what we should take away from Karl Marx today, 170 years after his Communist Manifesto. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm Ashley Ford, joined by producer Ross Tuttle. Hello, Ashley. How How's it going? I mean, I'm okay. You're I'm okay. all right. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Do you know what today is? What's today, Ross? The start of the World Cup. Yeah. Yeah. And I knew excited, that. And you're excited about this, right? Um, Super excited. I have feelings. Yeah. I certainly do have feelings. You always have feelings. I do. I know. I like that about you. <laughs> but for people who may not know, they'd be forgiven because the United States is not participating this year. They failed to qualify. Right. Feels less festive in a way. Yes. But there's an interesting Brooklyn angle that we're going to talk about in a future segment, I hope. That, you know, the Eastern District of New York, the U.S. Attorney's Office, based in Brooklyn, investigated the world soccer body FIFA and oh, corruption yeah. um, for payouts to people to get TV rights, mm. um, also for maybe placements for where the games were going to be held, which in a couple cups from now will be the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. Right now it's Russia. Russia, corruption. Mm. I don't want to make any false allegations here, but... On a lighter note, we're going to check in with a local freelance journalist who's going to tell us about where are some good spots to watch the Cup in Brooklyn. We're going to do that in a moment. I think we are. Eric Helene, are you with us? Hey, I'm here. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, it's good to be here. So you did a piece for a Thrillist recently about some spots to watch the World Cup. If you're in New York City, we wanted to focus a little bit on Brooklyn. What are some of the highlights? There's sort of a tendency to, like, want to search out kind of, like, ethnic enclaves to try to find, like, you know, the, the hippest, like, Brazilian bar. But I think, honestly, your best bet, if you really want to get into World Cup soccer, is just find, like, super good, dedicated soccer bars. Mm. And Brooklyn has a few of them. I think Banter in Williamsburg is one of the best. Like, everybody that goes there is super into soccer. They know everything the owners are like super big soccer nerds which is great and then sort of similarly uh also in williamsburg Kent street alehouse is also great mm -hmm. same kind of vibe like people who are super into soccer owners that care a lot about soccer everybody's like playing all the games it's great what about as a newbie? You know, I I will say this for the record. Soccer was the only sport I was actually good at. Um, but watching it has always been tough for me. If I go to a bar deciding that I'm trying to get into soccer, what should I do to prepare? What can I expect before I even get there? Oh, yeah. No, I can totally relate. I was super good at soccer until I was about eight years old. And then eight. And then it totally went off the rails. But, <laughs> and, no, I, I think that's, like, super valid. I honestly had to read, like, a Vox explainer about, like, how the World Cup works before all of this. So that's one of the benefits of going to a bar like Banter, where it's, like, right. all the people care a lot about soccer, and they're all, like, sort of ambassadors for the sport. So you're talking to people who want you to love the sport as much as they do. Um, and you may not get that if you go to, you know, a Brazilian restaurant where people are sort of singularly focused, like one thing. 
And Eric, you spoke to me when we chatted on the phone before this about a really cool sounding place in Sunset Park. Oh yeah, so if uh, if a bar like uh, Banter or Kip Street Ale House is like kind of a new generation soccer bar, uh, there's a bar called Soccer Tavern out in Sunset Park, which is uh, absolutely great. It's like the first generation of that kind of bar. So it's like a bunch of really old-school soccer fans that hang out there. And in the particular part of Sunset Park that it's in, it's this weird, like, sort of multi-ethnic confluence that Brooklyn is sort of famous for. So it's like on an old Norwegian strip in a new Chinatown, and it's an Irish pub. So it's like this really crazy uh, sort of multi-ethnic experience it sounds and amazing like, yeah it's great and like they care about soccer it's just a great old brooklyn dive which are like kind of disappearing as you know so yeah we can might as well get the most of those while they're around i guess right eric thank you so yeah, much for being here i can't tell you how <laughs> amazing it is because i know nothing i know nothing about soccer and i'm thinking i might want to get into it this helps me out a lot yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not the best year, obviously, with right. not in it, but... Plenty of games still to watch. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to talk to you. Thanks, okay, Eric. thanks a lot, Eric. Coming up, two scholars on masculinity and gun violence. In the summer of 2016, our next guest held an event at the Brooklyn Institute concerning gun violence, religion, and masculinity. It was hailed on the heels of the Pulse nightclub shooting, which happened two years ago this week. Since that shooting, we've seen many more mass shootings, both at schools and public events. The conversation is still hugely relevant, but have things actually gotten worse in the past two years, or are we closer to a tipping point? To discuss, we welcome two individuals from the Brooklyn Institute for Social Research. Suzanne Schneider, the Deputy Director, thanks for coming on. Thank you. And Associate Faculty Member Patrick Blanchfield, welcome to the show, Patrick. So you guys had this conversation two years ago. Yeah. Okay, two years ago this conversation <laughs> happened. How would it be different if it were held today, do you think? I think in fundamental ways, some of the dynamics that Patrick and I were interested in uh, when we had that initial conversation have only come into more sharp relief. By way of background, I'm a scholar. I work on the Middle East. I work predominantly on uh, religious movements, and I've been working a lot on Islam and kind of violence in the Middle East, and particularly groups like ISIS. You know, Patrick is a scholar of American gun culture. And what we found, though, is that our kind of areas of interest were increasingly converging, and I think the Pulse nightclub shooting was a kind of, you know, break that to a, a tipping point with a figure like Omar Martin. But, you know, since then, I feel like the data that has that we have gotten, both from the, the profile of individuals who participate, say, in mass shootings on one hand, the profile of individuals who might be running away to Syria on the other hand, we actually are finding that there is a, a great deal of overlap. And I said some of those details have only, you know, come into, I think, sharper relief since we initially had this conversation. Wow. Patrick, how about you? I think... Some things have come into sharp relief as well. I mean, one of the major themes in our conversation was how there are these sort of divergent cultural logic by which different acts of violence are processed differently, depending basically on the complexion and 
purported ideology, the perpetrator, right? Uh, and since since that conversation, you know, the election and whatnot, but also we've had events like, you know, marchers in Charlottesville being called, like, very nice people. Or, and meanwhile, we've had the president manufacture terrorist events in Sweden that didn't even happen, or comment or, as it's on breaking news. Yeah, precisely. Or, or comment on breaking news events and indicate that these must clearly be acts of Islamic terror. So, again, we see a certain cultural logic by which certain events are siloed as being terror, and we know what they're about, and it's pathologized, and other ones are understood as being normative and acceptable and even done by good people who just make mistakes. Yeah, I mean, and I think that the way that you see this kind of inflected in kind of normative political culture is around this kind of question of men mental illness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a Nicholas Cruz, right, who is the, the shooter in Parkland, right. he's disturbed, right? He's mentally unstable. Whereas, his, you know, had that been done by a Muslim, there's just no question I mean, that no that person question. is disturbed. <laughs> that person is a religious fanatic who hates right. our freedom, right? right? It's um, something about intentionality. And yes. when we assign intentionality and when we don't. And I think that that's really, to me anyway, yeah. that's the really, really interesting distinction. Um, after the Las Vegas shooting last year, we got a real sense of how these episodes were discussed by politicians and the media, like you said. Like, it was seeing that happen. I think when Las Vegas happened, when that many people were shot at once, do you guys remember the numbers like on that? 56? I mean, it's, it's 56, and then you had another four or 500 people injured in just yes. the fray and tumble. Yes, yeah. just in the fray and tumble yeah. of it. And to hear um, the conversation conversation about what happened there versus conversations about maybe what happened in San Bernardino or something. Yeah. It's, it's completely and absolutely different. Can you talk about why, how we characterize the people who commit these acts of atrocity is, is so important? Yeah, I mean, it really does matter what language we use when we talk about these things. Right. What's happening here is that the kind of differentiation between kind of mentally disturbed white dude on one hand and, and kind of evil terrorist on the other really functions to kind of shore up this distinction between the insiders and the outsiders. And, you know, I've written about this recently, that at a time when, you know, American gun violence claims over 1,000 lives for every single individual that was ever killed by terrorists, right. you know, from 2001 to the present, you know, we have all—we have a flurry of activity on one front here, that we can close our borders, that we can, you know, ban immigrants, ban refugees, and that it's the, always the outsiders who are kind of perceived as being more dangerous. Right. But actually, all of our data points that are kind of the biggest threats are walking among us. Right. Um, And—but we don't really want to face up to that, and nor do we really have the political will, it seems, to make any sort of meaningful mm. change on—in terms of gun control, in terms of things that might actually make us safer. Right. So there is a kind of an apparition of, of safety that comes through things like— stricter border security or, right. you know, funding—throwing billions of dollars at kind of counterterrorism, while at the same time, like, we have this, like, runaway gun violence, which is right. actually killing a lot of people. And it's not—actually, Patrick, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this specifically, because this is really interesting to me as well. Do—would people rather believe they were safe in a certain way than actually be safe by changing things? Because that's what it—that's what it certainly sounds like. But I'm wondering, like, is it more complex than—because when I break it down, that's what I see, basically. Or people would rather think they are safe than actually be safe. No, I think that's absolutely true, uh, in, 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 in ways that are almost so blatant and sad as just to be— tragic. Uh, yeah. And I, I can think about what Susie was addressing here about this question of like pathologization, mm -hmm. right? When individual, invariably young, or almost always young white men mm -hmm. uh, commit mass casualty attacks, 
they are pathologized as individuals, right? As, as they, or even you know, that burden is put on other people. Their classmates right. didn't do yes. free didn't mental health them. care right. for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the girl embarrassed him. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. She, yeah. It, which is another way of just victim blaming her for saying basically she had it coming, right? Uh, right. She should have done more emotional or perhaps even physical labor to sate his need. So, and then that happens, and also our mainstream discourse essentially engages in theological language of being like, you know, sort of like right. Job in the Bible, like, well, what can we do? This is a tragedy. We must pray and turn to God. Mm -hmm. and meanwhile, if the perpetrator is a young, brown-skinned, or specifically Arab Muslim man, right, then the entire culture is pathologized as being mentally ill. Mm -hmm. And what here is essentially, what in the first case is totally baked in, inane, theological, like, vapidness, right. then becomes also another sign of pathology over there, where we're simultaneously, yeah. a Muslim culture is totally violent, is Islam is a religion of violence as yeah. such, and, and it, so it, 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 becomes, it perpetuates this. Yeah. Even more than a mental illness, the, I, I think the way when I see people describe it, what I would think of or what I would call it would be almost cultural illness. Yeah. They believe there is something about the culture of those mm -hmm. who are different from however we are. Which, which is just kind of like an older oriented trope, kind of, right. with, we put some, like, new clothing on it for the 21st right. century. Yeah, I know you have a little bit more to say, but I really yeah. want to go here, and I want to make sure we don't run yeah. out of time. Yeah. But what's the media's role in this? You know, as somebody who, you know, at times I've written opinion pieces, you know, mm -hmm. I know a lot of people that I know are writing opinion yeah. pieces all the time, and I feel like this is the main thing they're saying, which is, like, yeah. there's this dichotomy, there's this um, idea that, you know, a person who looks like this does a crime, and it's this, and a person who looks like this does it, and all of a sudden it's being packaged differently. Yeah. But is that enough to yeah. write about these things and talk about them? Uh, I mean, I think that what, like, I mean, there's, there's, first of all, there's like terrible media. Like, I don't want to put that right. aside because they're not helping at all. But what you see in that kind of, in the terrible media, um, which I think some people who are trying to do smarter journalism can and should pick up on, mm -hmm. is our tendency to treat certain people as individuals versus certain people as kind of just mere representatives of this larger, overdetermining cultural force that right. kind of almost predisposes them to violence. So, right. you know, we treat these kind of American mass shooters as individuals and we look at their kind of individual psychology and development, whereas mm -hmm. we kind of are very comfortable speaking in mono and kind of homogenizing terms about outsiders and about others. Right. Um, I mean, I think that something that media can do, though, is just, you know, raise awareness, first of all, about how these things are interconnected. Um, you know, the uh, Patrick and I have both kind of um, remarked, you know, there are videos that are put out fairly regularly by ISIS and by other kind of um, uh, radical groups that explicitly call on Americans to, and American Muslims to, who are not able to travel to Syria are now the terror territorial base is kind of dissolved, but, you know, to take advantage of America's lax gun laws and mm -hmm. to buy rifles and buy pistols and go on mass shooting sprees. Like, this right. is—and—and—and and, and there's no clear indication of how we need to think of these things not as kind of mm -hmm. distinct phenomenon, but really knit together than a video right. like that. And in some of these videos, they even will then cut to television footage of mm -hmm. mass shootings. Wow. Whew! That's a—what <laughs> an indictment. Uh, I actually—this is something that I want to ask you about, um, because one of the things that we just talked about on the show uh, was the idea um, of suicide contagion in the wake of the deaths of both mm -hmm. um, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. How— which is basically about how, you know, these high-profile high suicides can actually lead to, you know, more suicides happening yeah. as people see them. Does this, does this work the same way? Because it seems like it does. Yeah. 
I think there's some. Def I think there's definitely some compelling uh, empirical research to indicate that there is a large copycat phenomenon when it comes to school shootings and mass shootings specifically, right? Mm -hmm. And you can find these sort of subterranean or not so subterranean corners of the internet where people right. are, you know, yeah. venerating various mass shooters as saints. But and this again gets at the question both of the media's role and at your question earlier about like what what do people want in terms of safety, right? And I would argue that one of the primary functions of the American media and American media discourse, at least in the mainstream, is to launder violence into sort of talk and to ratify certain distributions of violence into different spaces where we see it as, as appropriate, mm -hmm. right? Such that um, we are told consistently to mobilize massive financial and cultural and military resources against this omnipresent, ubiquitous threat of terror from the Muslim world, which has been going on for nearly two decades, right. uh, but also to accept and basically just pray away a regular steady churn of domestic gun violence. And, and mm -hmm. sometimes these issues intersect, not just in the example that Susie gave us, too, which, which, which is devastating, but also in a lot of the pro-gun control rhetoric that you see from Democrats, where you have these uh, former soldier-turned-like quasi-woke Democrats being like, I carried an AR-15 in Baghdad, and this doesn't belong on our streets. And I'm like, well, you know, maybe it doesn't belong on anybody's right. streets. So, well, like, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe these problems are kind of connected. Maybe we're not so special yeah. that, like, we don't deserve them, but everybody else yeah. does. Exactly. Like, maybe yeah. no one should have them. Um, and the last question that, you know, I just have a little bit of time for here, but I definitely, you know, Susan, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, but if you guys were going to have that conversation today, mm -hmm. what do you think the title would be? Or would it be the same? <laughs> I think that the original title, which is Framing Terror, yeah. quite, yeah. holds up quite nicely, honestly, because it kind of gets at the essential question about which types of, which types of acts do we decide to classify as terrorist mm -hmm. and why that actually matters in real material terms. Right. Yeah, do you have any other thoughts on that? I like that title, too, and I, I still stand by it. I think maybe I'd switch it a little bit to be almost more talking about like producing terror, because right. I think there is this way, particularly with the media component here, where mm. what's happening is a production of terror right. as a phenomenon that we can be like, you know, again, that we can point to, yeah. and it sort of offers an explanation well, for where we are right I mean, now. I appreciate precisely. it. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you both so much for being here. I feel like we could have gone on and on. There's so much to say <laughs> okay. here, and I would love to have you back at some point to Thanks talk more about Thanks for having us. Great. Thank you for being on today. Yeah. Thank you. years ago, the 150th anniversary of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels' Communist Manifesto, a publisher wanted to reintroduce its lessons and invocations to the world. Back then, same as now, and especially in the U.S., we were living in an age of rampant consumerism and the commodification of almost everything. But marketing the manifesto created an inherent contradiction. How can you sell and consume a product so intrinsically opposed to both capitalism and consumerism? Well, that's the subject of a recently published article in Jacobin by the very publisher who two decades ago schemed to get Marx's insights back into our consciousness. He's the co-publisher and editor at Or Books, and we're so excited to have Colin Robinson on the show. Colin, thank you so much for being here. Very pleased to be here. So why did you decide to write about this event 20 years after it happened? 
Well, Marx is in the news quite a bit uh, yes, these he days. Is. You know, capitalism isn't doing so well these days. Mm. I thought, yeah, I should uh, maybe just put down for posterity the experience of publishing the manifesto back in 1998. Mm -hmm. I really, this is something that I also want to ask you, why did you approach Barney's of all places? Like, why not Urban Outfitters or, you know, really anywhere that, like, they have one sale there? Because that's the same <laughs> at Urban Outfitters. You get one sale, and if you don't make it, nothing else is on sale. Right. So what happened was that we decided we were going to try and do a different type of marketing for the manifesto. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the working class in the United States, in fact, in most of the West now, has changed. Um, you know, in Marx and Engels' day, everyone was working in big factories. You know, they mm -hmm. were industrial workers. That's not really where the working class is these days. The working class is more likely to be in offices. Uh, mm -hmm. They're more likely to be in white-collar jobs than blue-collar right. jobs. And so we thought, how could we possibly appeal to that group of the population? And we thought, well, maybe what we should do is do a very stylish edition of the Communist Manifesto. And then we thought, wouldn't it be fun to say that it was a kind of luxury edition of the Communist Manifesto? Because mm -hmm. obviously there's a kind of contradiction there that might, catch, bit, yeah. might catch people's imagination. So then we thought, well, OK, well, we could make it look very beautiful. We could put red end papers on it. We can put a little ribbon on it. We can die stamp the boards of the binding with workers of the world unite. We got this beautiful painting by these Russian satirical artists called Komar and Melamid. Mm -hmm. um, they painted this big red flag and we put that on the, on the dust jacket. So it looked really cool and elegant mm -hmm. and fashionable. So when we sent out the press release, we said that we were going to sell it in upscale retail outlets mm -hmm. across the United States. Right. Well, of course, I'm a, like a completely broke left-wing publisher. I had no, <laughs> right. I had no idea where upscale uh, retail outlets were. I, I mean, I don't shop in them. I couldn't couldn't afford to. Right. But we sent out the press release, and this this uh, journalist from New York magazine called up and said, "I'm kind of intrigued about this. I'd like to do a story about it. Right. Where exactly are you thinking you're going to be selling it?" And I said, uh, I don't know. I, I said, I, the only upscale place I could think of, I'd never been there, let alone shop there. I said, well, you know, like Barney's, we're going to sell it in Barney's. Right. So she said, well, would you mind if I ask Barney's what they think of this idea? And I thought, well, be my guest. But I also thought, that's the last I'll ever hear about, <laughs> hear right. about this, because right. they are so not going to be doing the Communist Manifesto. Right. 20 minutes later, she called me back and she said, you know, you should get in touch with Barney's. They're actually pretty interested in this. That is... I could have passed out. I was like, that was amazing news. So, My word. Yeah. That is really shocking. Were you worried that it would become, like, a, disposal, a disposable commodity bought just because it would look really well on, like, a bleached white oak table? I mean, there was that concern, you yeah. know, and, and other people, um, you know, that I work with raised that. Um, but, you know, I went up to meet Barney's. I met this guy called Simon Doonan, who works there. He's their mm -hmm. kind of marketing guy. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, quite a creative guy and a smart guy. Uh, and he said, so what's your vision here? You know, what do you want from us? And I said, well, I was thinking that we could have one of the big windows at Madison Avenue mm -hmm. with the mannequins marching across 
the front of the window, and they would be carrying big banners which would say, Workers of the World Unite, and you could dress them in whatever clothes you wanted to. I mean, I, right. I wouldn't know what they should be wearing, but in their purses, they would have copies of our book. And he looked at me and he said, this is ironic, right? And I said, <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of ironic and it sort of isn't ironic. It's right. the tension between the two things that actually makes it interesting right. and might make people come in and flock into your store. Right. So he said, you know, I said, I can see, uh, I can see there's some point to this. I, I mean, I was amazed that he was responding in this way. He said, I can see some red lipstick around it. It might work. He said, but I, I have to talk to the owners of the store. So I left. I thought, that is just amazing. I like the fact that this may be happening is right. just <laughs> astonishing to me. Anyway, what happened was he did talk to the owners of the store. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, word kind of got out. I must say, I told a few people about, yeah. this, about this extraordinary <laughs> meeting where it got out and people started writing about it. I mean, all right. over the place, actually. I mean, yeah. just all over the place. I mean, the New York Times, the New Yorker, uh, I think uh, Associated Press put out a release and then it went out. What in, was their take on it? Like Very? retailers see big sales in Marxism. I think oh, that was wow. That, that was the front page headline on the Staten Island Advance. You know, wow. It was just sort of weird. You know, yes. but fabulous if you're marketing a book. Right. It just couldn't <laughs> have been better. You know. So there was, it was just everywhere. Mm -hmm. Television got interested in it. They were doing vox pop on the sidewalk outside of Barney's, and then what happened was that it kind of this was all before the display had actually gone up. It was just right. talking about the idea of it. Then the backlash started. Mm. People started writing into the newspapers saying, this was the book that resulted in my great-grandfather dying in the gulag, you know. Right. Um, I mean, that seemed to me a bit like blaming all of the, you know, deaths that have occurred in wars that Christianity's been involved mm. in on the Bible, you know. It's right, like that. We could talk about the Hundred Years' War if anybody <laughs> want to talk about it, <laughs> but they don't right. ever want to talk about it. <laughs> right. I, you can't blame Marx and Engels for all of the terrible things that yeah. were done in their name subsequently. I don't think you can anyway. Absolutely. Uh, but there was a backlash, and in the end, Barneys didn't do it, you know. So, mm -hmm. But by that time, we were, we were off. I mean, we were in the news, and we were selling lots and lots of copies of the Manifesto. So Who did great. anybody end up, like any stores end up having it? Well, I went to a event with the one of the chief executives of Barnes and Noble, mm. you know, the bookstore chain, and um, we kind of got chatting about it, um, different things. And he said, "Well, you know, why don't you come for lunch? And you know, we can be interesting to have a, a, a talk about what you're up to." So I went for lunch with him, and I told him about the campaign we were mounting around the manifesto and he said I think this is a great idea we should put it by the cash registers so they did a they did a national display at Barnes and Noble of mm -hmm. the manifesto which was great although that upset some of the independents right there was a bookstore called St Mark's on St Mark's place it was a quite mm -hmm. a famous independent I think it may have closed down there. I think it but did the, the St Mark's bookstore actually yeah. closed but the owner said he got in touch with me and he said, I can't believe that you're doing this thing with these with this big chain which puts all these independent bookstores out of business. I'm really fed up about this, you know. So I, I didn't know how to calm him down, but I then I had this idea. We'd made a poster for the book mm -hmm. um, which said, Workers of the World Unite, you have nothing to lose but your chains. Mm. So we changed the poster, we like 
changed some of the words in it and we made it into shoppers of the world unite. You have nothing to lose but the chains, you know, mm. the, like the retail chains. Yeah. And, and we sent that poster over to him. And he was, like, so happy about that. He put it up in his window. Oh. And it was up in the window for several years, actually. Wow. So, so that kind of um, that assuaged that's you. That's so, so thoughtful. <laughs> I feel like that's really creative and thoughtful. And I also wonder, you know, a book like this coming out 20 years ago, and, you know, I'm 31, so there's only so much I remember about that time, but I do remember a lot of rampant consumerism then. Yeah. And so how, how would you see a book like this even exist? Existing or being marketed or unmarketed in a certain way in a time like this? Well, I don't know whether consumerism has taken a dip. I guess it may have done because people have less money now mm. than they did back then, you yeah. know. So perhaps the market isn't quite as powerful as it was then. Mm -hmm. But I think the left, you know, I mean, I'm on the left. I'm a left-wing publisher. Mm -hmm. I've always tried to advance progressive socialist ideas. It's always had a very suspicious attitude towards marketing. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people on the left think that marketing is about selling people something they don't really want. But actually, I don't think that that's true. And I think if you're not prepared to engage in the techniques of marketing, mm -hmm. even if the ideas are about, in the end, abolishing the market, mm -hmm. um, then you, it's very hard to be heard. You know? right. The left has traditionally said, you know, well, if the ideas are strong enough, we'll just plant the flag and people will rally around. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, they probably won't. You That's know, not how it works. That, that isn't how people's attention is attracted. Do you think that those on the left um, need to be more resourceful salespeople? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think we need to use the creativity, which is very abundant on the left, actually. I mm -hmm. mean, if you look at people who have progressive views, you know, they're very dominant in art and design and in writing and, Absolutely. you know, creative people, I mean, not universally, but I'd say they tend to the more political, uh, the more progressive end of the political spectrum. Mm -hmm. So why not use those abilities to yeah. convey the ideas, uh, even if at the end of the process you're getting rid of the market altogether? Right. You have to kind of use the monster to eat itself, if you know Ooh. what I mean. You have to kind of use the techniques of the market to criticize the market. I like that. Mm. I like that a lot. You, letting the, allowing the monster to eat itself, I like that. Thank you so much, Colin, for being here and for talking to us about this. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you. And that's the show for today. Have a great weekend. And happy 35th Mermaid Parade for all those celebrating this weekend in Coney Island. Next week, we'll have an exit interview with BRICS President Leslie Schultz, who has run this house for 13 years. We'll also talk to a lawyer barred from his synagogue for his advocacy work on behalf of Muslim Americans. And we'll learn about the mayor's office initiative on mental health. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. Also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Tyrese Hester, Kritzi Roberts, Emily Bogosian, and Sarah Grachowski. It is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. It is recorded by Eric Hagasek and Antonio M. Rosario. Our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. And our executive producers are Assis Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.